back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald's Off the Table, a weekly podcast recording. I am your host, Jack, and I am joined by my co-host, John, and we have things to talk about today. But, John, you have some hypesicles, some little nuggets of hype that you wanted to get to before we got into the main topic of Commit the new blood and sand that is out that is going to be really our, our main focus today. What you got on the hype train? Uh, little little kernels of hype interjection. Okay, well, here, it's a prop game today. First of all, love them or hate them, I did get my copy of Ares in, finally. <laughs> Probably after Target did, I'm sure. I wouldn't know, don't have a Target. Uh, but I am pretty stoked about this. It's still a pretty slick production. You know, whatever, I don't have that much bad blood for, for the whole fiasco. It wasn't the world's biggest fiasco, so I'm still excited. It's shiny. The box is shiny. I love it when they do can't see it, can't see it. But the really glossy uh, cover art over top of the matte finish, like it when they do that, it's fancy. Yeah, I'm uh, really looking forward to playing Ares Expedition as well. I mean, Terraforming Mars is one of my absolute favorite games. Like, it is up there absolutely in the top three. I'm not really sure where it resides in that. I mean, any given day can switch that around. But having a consolidated version of that game with a slightly different focus is just a dream to me. I, I, I don't know. Where, where are you at with Terraforming Mars? Uh, I love Terraforming Mars. I think it's great. I think it's a good mix uh, between heavily thematic and uh, tight, tightly mechanical, but mm-hmm. with uh, enough unpredictability. Maybe it's not as dry as maybe some of the really heavily analytical Euro games, economic games. It's got a little bit more, you know, fickle nature because of the card draw, but you know, uh, that's why I love it. Is I think it's got a little more, uh, a little more flair. Uh, just on a brief note, since this is the since we're doing a first impressions, this is my first first impression. It's a very tightly packed uh, little box here. Uh, I wasn't really a big fan of one of their decisions about the inserts, uh, the little dividers. But overall, this is where everything fits. There's no dead weight, no dead space. They left me enough room to sleeve things. I, I love them for it. It's a really you put the little little instruction in. And look at that. It's such a tight package. This feels like it's a good, this is a good ambassador. If people go to Target and they buy this and they're like, oh, this is what a board game is. It's not like $7 worth of Monopoly. I would feel good about that. I'll leave it at that. A lot of good content in the box. I haven't gotten my copy yet, but we definitely will be doing a bunch of coverage of that game to oh, come. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just, it's inevitable. So next up on the hype roster, tell me about your Magic the Gathering love. You needed to do some gushing. Well, okay, but I kind of feel like we should do a hype sandwich where I put the not not as good a hype in the middle, kind of like a reverse Oreo where the middle part isn't the best part. Well, I actually think that in Oreos, the outside is the best part. I could do without the filling. That's why you bring me here to tell you when you're wrong. Jack, you're wrong. It's the filling. (laughs) We'll have that fight later, though. I'm Um, representing the cookie lovers. I've got nothing to hold up this time. Uh, But I do want to say that uh, you and I had a conversation. I just want to hype a little about Descent not third edition, whatever. Um, and, and I'll be honest, you know, I caught Tom Bassel's early review of it. He gave it kind of a meh, which for a guy who seems to rate really highly all those heavily thematic American-style games, you know, that's that's saying something, you know. We, eh, and especially since his criticisms were more directed not at the gameplay. I mean, he said the gameplay, he had some things he liked, but the gameplay was good. Just that it didn't feel like it hit the price point and... Maybe that there were better choices out there for Dungeon Calls. It could put a damper on my excitement. I, you know, I'm still cautiously optimistic. I still maybe, yeah, I, I'm hyped about it. I don't know. I love Descent Second Edition. I, I, I'm still really excited, and we're getting very close to uh, pre-order delivery time. So, I well, just wanted to. Descent is one of those games that had a profound impact on so many gamers out there. So it's a sensitive topic anytime that you do some drastic changes to it. And they definitely swung for something different in this one instead of the first edition and then the second edition, which were one versus all games. And of course, there was the app driven cooperative game that you could do later on. But this is from the get go. It's app driven. And also it has an art style that is completely out there compared to the rest of the FFG house style. And 
yeah, one of the the big concerns about the game is that the the MSRP is $175. That is a big big price point and Huge. When, you, when you compare that to say Gloomhaven, one of the most beloved games that are out there in the same genre that is also a fully cooperative game that you can get an app that does a lot of the management for you, you can get a ton of content in that Gloomhaven box and a lot of the concerns were are you getting less content for a higher price point with Descent? And old uh, old Vassal actually kind of called it a uh, an eighty dollar video game that wasn't as you know he wouldn't pay eighty bucks for a normal, but <laughs> which which is true. I mean, it was like if I had to pay eighty bucks for a video game out the gate, that's it better be a really good game. He called it an eighty dollar video game with an eighty dollar board game attached to it, kind of more or less. I'm, I'm paraphrasing there, but it was basically it. And I was like, you know. I can see that if that's how it feels. I can see that as a criticism. I also kind of see this as one of those things that a lot of people have left Fantasy Flight, a lot of old names, um, you know, who were around when the earlier Descent editions published. And it almost feels like one of those TV show moments where your favorite show changed up writers, the showrunners changed. Is it going to be the same thing I love? Or is it is it just in name only? Is it Descent in name? And honestly, I want to give it a chance. So I'm still hyped for it. You know, well, the good news is, is that the only other major reviewer that I've seen some coverage on this uh, come out yet is no pun included discussed it on their podcast. And they they're kind of more in the shut up and sit down vein of preference when it comes to games. They don't always agree, but, you know, they're one of the other major European reviewers that kind of have those same tastes. And they seem to have a much more glowing opinion of this, which I was frankly surprised uh but i i'm i'm excited to see what happens when it gets to the table and when it does get to the table inevitably we will be doing something like this for it i'll talk oh, yeah. more about why we're doing a focused episode on commit uh once we get there it doesn't Hype seem train is almost into right the now. station now. yeah exactly yeah. but you can't you can't keep giddy nerd enthusiasm down so yeah, let yeah. me just say this, that, that the Cardboard Herald, tune in, because it will be the definitive place for your answer of, do you need third edition if you have second? I will I will happily answer that question for you. As someone who has a lot we of will now have both. Yeah, yeah, who has all of one and will soon have the other, we'll be seeing whether both of them stick around or not, and whether oh. you should be as crazy as that. Okay, then what's the other end of the cookie on the hype sandwich here? Okay, the other part, the the backwards Oreo here is, is I just this this deserves visuals. Jack, do you know what this is? This I is do. A, this this is a beholder. It has one eye and then a lot of eyes. Uh huh. It's a classic dragon dice character. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, Jack, <laughs> Jack, do you recognize this exhibit uh, B? Yes, the deck master backing to Magic: The Gathering. Classic bit of iconography there. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, deck yeah. master. Nobody still knows to this day. <laughs> Uh, the, they and, stuck with it. They made their bed, and now they have to sleep with it thirty years later. So, uh, so then, so the, what is that, Jack? Why, why is it's it, well, it's really grainy and fuzzy. But why is there a beholder on my magic card? You've got because, peanut butter in my chocolate, or something. Yeah, because you couldn't resist having your toys cross over. And Wizards of the Coast owns both. And now there's a Dungeons and Dragons Magic Gathering set, and you're all about it. I can tell uh, you're like a ten year old right now. I haven't played Magic in forever and a day i haven't seriously paid attention to it in about 10 years or so uh oh also what is this is this some classic looking like old style art is that a mimic that's a mimic okay okay i'm gonna you do this one more time anything on a chub toad that's all i'm saying uh well yeah but i assume like D D could have chub toads in it too here's the thing <laughs> i'm actually really hyped about this they've done it was inevitable they've done D D crossovers they got a couple of supplements for magic stuff the reality is is magic settings were okay you know but i always do homebrew stories of my own and i'm always out to tell my own story so i'm not usually using the the settings as thoroughly in DD. so i'm not that excited to have magic settings in DD as much on the other hand i really am passionate about various other hobbies and it's really cool it's almost like the hall of fame hollywood walk of fame kind of thing to see them get their own star as a magic card and i'm gonna zoom in a little on this one this is a lamb. Oh yeah, is it a classic D&D module? Absolutely, but it's also I couldn't a lamb. tell because it's so blurry, but you know what? We'll pretend. This is good for the podcast listeners who don't have any visuals whatsoever. They can imagine a beautifully rendered oh, image. Yeah. 
Picture a picture a bald man frantically waving a uh, really grainy magic card to the <laughs> camera while Jack just looks on and goes, Get to commit yet? So I'm really excited. I bought just you know a handful of cards. I do I am gonna admit I'm gonna turn it into some board game room art where I mount them on the wall. But in the meantime, I'm gonna dabble a little bit. We're gonna open packs and draft cards for uh, Night of Magic in D D. So it's a great reason to get back into magic just to, you know, relive some of those moments from, you know, your childhood or even adulthood in playing magic. But also you have the excuse of seeing the novelty of Dungeons and Dragons being there. Do I want there to be like a Monopoly esque world of where magic has a do we need a Rick and Morty magic set? Do OK, maybe no. do we need definitely do we need not. A... Definitely not. And for a... others, yes. Yeah, right. I was just about the Adventure Brothers Magic. Okay, yes, yes, maybe. But does Marvel need to be in there? I no. Marvel can have its own game. Thank you. Uh, but tell me that you and I and the Cardboard Herald will not be jamming down with some Lord of the Rings later on, which is the next one of the next big themed non-magic world sets they're doing. Yeah, it, it is really exciting. There is a part of me that does have that bitter skepticism towards like licensing out different uh, properties in order to skin your thing as like a cash in. And that's a whole nother discussion that I, I want to have as an eventual topic that yeah. we uh, focus on trends. here. Yeah, exactly. You know, just going for nostalgia, you know, you and I are prey for the the harsh realities of the capitalistic nostalgia train. And uh, I'm always a little bit leery that they're going to take something great and just make something mediocre out of it. And then it's going to feel just terrible. But licensed games are a whole topic <laughs> in and of themselves. That, that is all over the place. But one of the- And I don't want Magic to be that. I don't want them to start being like, man, people really seem to like it when jam their favorite XYZ. Rick and Morty was a great one of like, do we take the pop culture hotness today and just go, you know what? There, let's insert that sucker right into a magic set, you know, and uh, and then it be like I said, it becomes a monopoly of like, oh, we've got an addition of everything. No, I don't want that, and that would be like deck building games, which are the soulless cash grab of the licensing world. Another conversation, but I'm still excited for this soulless cash grab. Right. And the world works cohesively like it's an expansive world where you can draw on a lot and you can draw parallels between the existing magic lore and structure with what's already in D&D, &D, the bestiary, the world, the planeswalker elements. And the same thing could be said for Middle Earth, like you have a reason why you could trade in these different environments the planeswalkers travel there jace is getting his like total edgelord thing on in middle earth it just depends on whether it becomes canon or not or you know because we are talking <laughs> about the same company that brought us a herloom minotaur wearing uh fantastic looking jeans yeah well yeah that, that's uh one of my favorite uh so if you think of it as like another cards. unglued set like it's not canon then maybe you can get you know get around it so it needs the so silver borders Oh, I should also say that I, I do have your, uh, I'm waving about for the podcast here, waving a big bag of heavy metal things that are not individually wrapped. Uh, I got my cubes too, so I got your cubes. Yeah, yeah. Terraforming Mars, uh, they managed to dodge the fiasco that was in the Terraforming Mars big box where they individually wrapped every single metal cube in its own little Ziploc bag. And uh, at least that quality control error was fixed for Aries, or I guess... Maybe that that's an unintended bonus that now you don't have sleep cubes. So maybe you should complain on the internet about right. The, these cubes are going to wear out faster because they're not individually sleep. Yep. Okay. Well, we have a big box topic to talk about. Right over your shoulder is Comet Blood and Sand. I'm wearing my yellow hoodie because I wanted to represent the sand here. Actually, that's just coincidental. But I love this yellow hoodie. Comet is a game that was a, a big influence on both of us as gamers. Uh, it's a game that we played a lot uh, and we kind of have separate standing on um, our, our opinions on Comet today. I think we're both, you know, reverent of it, uh, but it's left my collection, whereas it has stayed in your collection and you have it's another copy now doubled in my collection actually yeah I mean, one could say it is breeding more commits if i leave them alone in a room i'll have commit third edition before we know it. 
Well, in order to supplement this, I'm going to uh, try and share my screen so we can get to some links here and hope that the live stream doesn't fall entirely apart. If it does, let us know in chat. Uh, Gracia from uh, Midnight Board Games is really upset about not I having wanna... the, uh, the the delivery there. So um, I do want to call that out. I, I feel for you because, you know, my own experience with that one. And uh, I don't want to rag on anybody too hard, but Curse is just a fun again games. It seems like every Kickstarter that they are the distributor for or the, the fulfillment center for is always a fiasco in terms of who gets what. I got my commit after having to email Matigo uh, and, and prompt them and, and follow up with customer service because they insisted that 100% of American backers had already been shipped out or whatever, as I'm sitting there with no tracking number three weeks after that announcement. So... Uh, well, I feel for you, and uh, hopefully you'll get yours soon. That, that's the hope. Okay, so uh, I want to start this out with a little bit of history on Comet. So, uh, like, uh, Comet is a game that uh, came out in 2012, and at least for me, it has the unique place of being the first game that I remember seeing the release schedule of it. There was an anticipation for the game on the horizon, watching reviews, and knowing that there was this game that was in a way a spiritual successor or a spiritual sequel to Cyclades, a game that you and I both liked. Uh, do you remember anything about like the the preparation for getting Commit? Not really. I think, honestly, I, I want to say that it, it came onto my radar after it already released, but not long after. Right. I, I think the Shut Up, Sit Down uh, review was one of the first times in which I had watched a review for like a brand new game and it was really exciting and you know the the way that were they were describing it is so visceral uh and then uh it's a gamer's game yes so that, that i remember that review too that was exactly what you said about it. The, the first time that i remember hearing uh the phrase a uh, knife fight in a phone booth used in a board game review and i feel like it has been used in a lot of board game reviews since then a lot of words like that uh you know like or, or phrases like that come up time and time again in uh, reviews uh dripping with theme uh, that's a common one there so uh, then we have some expansions this game out. Tassetti came out in 2015. I was big on Tassetti. It had the Black Pyramids. And then it had a bunch of stuff that I didn't care about. And Does then, anybody even remember what else it had? Like it was Black Pyramids and, and I call it the Black Old Pyramids. Old guys walking in the desert, right? It, well, actually, I like to think of that as just stuff to make the box rattle when you shake it. Like, <laughs> yeah. honestly, it was the Black Pyramid expansion. It wasn't Tassetti. It was the Black Pyramid expansion and some other stuff to make the box rattle. And then until I was doing some research for this uh, review, I had totally forgotten about Seth, like even coming out that I did not get it as an expansion. So I really had no context for what was going on with this one. Did you actually pick it up? You were by this time still the diehard Comet uh, fan. I, I was and more pyramids is always cool. Like I really wanted more black pyramid type stuff more things and, and 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 it's great that we had the expansion discussion before this because we called out the black pyramid expansion tassetti as being great and terrible because it had both an easily always integratable thing the black pyramid you always want to play with those um if you're playing with anybody even even first time so honestly most of the time but then it had that sin of well it's got garbage in there too that you, it just adds mini games you don't really want to think about it it's not the greatest whatever um, Looking at the images here for Seth, you got some real cool minis in there, like a crocodilian. Got a crocodile monster in there. You can get your your uh, your your gator thing on. Uh, what what was the main focus of Seth as an expansion? Well, Seth was a Seth was one that I actually haven't gotten to the table, and it's a shame because they haven't reproduced it in the new edition. Maybe they will, but honestly, I'm not sure if it fits. I don't know. So the idea was it's a one versus many. It mm. turns the chaotic free-for-all knife fighting in a phone booth to a, a group shanking in a public bathroom. I don't know. where. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> is, that, is that a thing that happens? I don't know. Uh, um, only in the best bathrooms. <laughs> right? I guess I need to not go to public bathrooms if that's what I think is going on there. 
<laughs> so, but that's what it was, is one person would take on the role of the, the purple faction who would have their own independent set of abilities, but would then interact with the others. Uh, the others would also, the other, the other players would then work together to defeat you, which I've always kind of admired the idea of a cooperative game in which you are facing like this world ending threat, you know, I think Game of Thrones where you have, you know, the, the White Walkers and the others that are coming down from the north and one person actually controls that invasion. That sounds really cool. On paper, uh, I haven't seen it implemented particularly well in very many games, although I can think of one or two that did some interesting things. Uh, but that was the idea. And it, and it had some really cool pieces, parts. It had some neat looking powers. Unfortunately, by the time I, you know, I got it and it sat on the shelf and kind of lang uh, languished there and has not made it off the table. And I don't know that it will. I'd, I'd like to try maybe before I move on and just hang on to second edition, but we'll see if that's in the cards. Well, let's talk about second edition. So 2020, we have the Kickstarter for Blood and Sand, which was intended to be like this revitalization of Comet. And it was going to have some expansion material, but not the bad expansion material. And then it was going to have a visual overhaul and rebalancing and all this kind of stuff. Um, were you on board right away? Like, I, I don't really know where you sit as far as like re-releases of existing games. There are certainly a lot of gamers out there who are like, unless it does enough new, I don't care. I am kind of, I would lean 60-40 as being easy prey, 60%, 20% <laughs> distinguishing and very discerning uh, consumer, but 60% easy prey if it was a game I'm really hot for. I immediately, I think of the possibilities, and, and to me, I immediately go, well, it's Comet, but more, better, newer, faster, stronger, deaf, funky. Um, I love know, it. I imagine it was probably the same well, maybe not, but uh, somewhat in the same vein as maybe how you felt about like the Eclipse reimagining, and maybe that's a mm -hmm. whole topic. Is you know where do you land on new editions, and what should they do? What shouldn't they? But yeah, I, I, I as far as like, as far as where I'm at with this is that if a game is a game that I love, and there's a new better and more polished version not just from like a visual aesthetic point of view but also from like refining the rules just enough in order to make it a more sustainable game or modernizing it just a little bit then i want the best version of my favorite games i prefer having a few games that i love to having an immense collection of hundreds upon hundreds of games and in that regard if there's something out there that's going to be the the revitalization of an older game that I love, of course I'm going to go after it. So long as I don't ruin it along the way. I mean, the assumption is that it, it's, it's gotta be a better value prospect too, than just paying all over again for the same board game. And so, yeah, I mean, I did look at it to see is, you know, are they making any rules changes? I mean, because I am definitely keen to see if there's rules updates and, you know, polish on the rules, not just maybe making it a new game entirely, but, but polishing the existing rules that you love and seeing it kind of bring it forward into the, the next generation of board games, that is a huge thing. Um, and, and then, of course, the component upgrades. You know, that's nice, but, but honestly, I could pass on component upgrades if there weren't any rules polishing going on or, or maybe new material. And like with this edition, for example, um, it didn't tread on, on a lot of new ground. I mean, mm -hmm. it really, it, what it is, it took the old game and it re-implemented it with some polish on it, hopefully, in theory. That'll, we'll get to that. Um, but then it also added the, the Black Pyramids from the Tosseti expansion. Didn't touch, really, the Seth expansion at all. Didn't touch the extra material from Tosseti. Kind of recognized which way the wind was blowing and did away with that. Um, and then it did tack on an expansion that did not exist, which was the Green Pyramids, the Book of Death, uh, onto this one. So there was new content plus polish to the old content, plus board game components. So that made it kind of an easy buy, especially when you told me there were green pyramids. I'm just like another a whole other color <laughs> of pyramids. Yes, that sounds like more of what I want. 
And if we're discussing this from a historical preservationist point of view to, to note what happened along the way, there was a minor controversy, right, during the Kickstarter where initially they were like, this is going to be the Lovecraftian expansion. And then a bunch of people were like, oh, you can't mix Lovecraftian stuff with Egyptian stuff. Those themes are entirely incompatible. And then they were like, okay, we'll make it the Book of Death expansion, but we'll also make the Cthulhu figures available. I, I, I In talking with you as a dedicated, like, you are one of the biggest Lovecraft super fans I know. You are way into cosmic horror. You've read tons of Lovecraft. And you are the person who really introduced me to a lot of other things in the vein of Lovecraft when it comes to uh, cosmic horror fiction and other games and that kind of stuff. And you had one of the best takes that I can imagine on what the, the overlap truly is there. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me because I love listening to the things that I said repeated back to me. It's very <laughs> gratifying. Um, I mean, the sound of my own voice is nice too, but it's just so much better hearing other people repeat my words. Um, no, it's kind of almost like having a, a mini cult of my own, speaking of Lovecraft. But no, you're okay. I don't know if I'd call myself a Lovecraft super fan. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of Lovecraft as a genre. And I appreciate it kind of in the way that, that sometimes you'll talk about when you talk about reading like Mary Shelley or um, I think you're probably going to go do a read of like uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, maybe totally. inspired yeah, by yeah. Nemo's War. So I kind of appreciate it in that same vein as like it, it's, it's got some merits to it. There's definitely a lot of problematic pieces to, to Lovecraft. Of course, of course. But but really um, thinking of him as kind of a iconic for a genre, I really do like that genre of like, what if the evil that we're facing, what if what if God exists, but he's not necessarily inclined to be so friendly? And the only reason we all survive is because he doesn't know that we're here. We're too insignificant. And heaven forbid we ever actually take, you know, he takes notice of us or whatever, right? So it's that concept of like, wow, evil isn't meant to be defeated. It can only be delayed and avoided. Um, and that's, that's really cool. So the thing about Lovecraft is... Um, of course, it was all this ancient and unknowable evil, and it's been around since time immemorial. And very much a who built the pyramids? Well, you know, it's probably probably aliens or Cthulhu monster type stuff. So really, the two pieces of Lovecraftian lore that they interject or they injected into this didn't—they were not anachronistic to the setting. This is a mythological Egyptian setting, and this was just saying, well, Lovecraft wrote his mythos, and and all the other authors that participated in that, a lot of that mythos existed with ancient Egypt as one of the civilizations in mind among, among many. Um, so it worked in that setting. You know, if you're, if you want to inject Lovecraft, it works. I like that. They said, okay, well, we're, we'll make it more. We'll stick to the Egyptian only mythology, but it's the same powers we were going to do, except that we'll give you the tiles with the Egyptian gods on them. And if you want to buy for like, I don't know, it was really cheap. It was like seven or $10, I think. You can, get, you can get the two minis that we were going to use, plus the two power tiles with their art on them. No difference in terms of balance or play. It just kind of like, what theme do you want to apply to it? I kind of like that. I, I just love the sort of gatekeeping that is involved in, you know, anytime we have a nerdy property. Again, this is the intimacy that people have with the things that they love, but sometimes they take it overboard where they can't accept any sort of change or any sort of mix up. And the idea that like, how dare you cash in on Lovecraft as a, an IP that's totally available in you know the public domain and therefore you're going to wedge it into this game. Ancient unknowable evil is one of the themes of almost any sort of Western fiction that uses Egypt as a setting, right? And the idea that there are these, these gods or mystic powers that may or may not care about the mortals that they are manipulating for their own ends is one of the most common tropes of this this pantheon as used in popular fiction now. So to me, it's chocolate and peanut butter. I'm glad I got Midnight Board Gaming uh, agreeing that the Mythos faction or uh, Cthulhu's in addition was a, a good choice. Uh, so so I'm not alone. There were yep. others. But I, I, I do understand because Lovecraft is public domain. Good that you mentioned that. So it's it's kind of ubiquitous in board gaming as a theme because anybody can do pirates, anybody can do Vikings, you know, but you got to get a license to Star Wars and Marvel and all the all the big IPs. 
Um, but Lovecraft is, a, is actually kind of a big IP in and of itself or, you know, and, and he's not alone. It's, it's many, many authors who wrote in that sort of shared mythos. And, um, and so, yeah, I could see how people are like, man, stop jamming Lovecraft into everything. I think in the, it, kind of like what I said about magic, let's not, let's not make a set for, you know, we don't need Star Wars magic, but I think this was not that. And it, it was a good fit. And it's a shame. Some people were like, don't put Cthulhu in my stuff. <laughs> Those people probably haven't actually read any of the any of the material, though. And it's, it's funny you'd bring it up because some of our favorite stuff, you know, I've just finished playing Mass Effect again uh, and heavily Lovecraft inspired. They're literal space Cthulhu machines coming from the sky. Space Shagas coming in. I mean, I guess that's where Cthulhu's from. So saying space is unnecessary. So robot Cthulhu. <laughs> it's mecha Cthulhu. <laughs> uh, uh, what, what, what's the term they use? Synthetic Cthulhu. Yep, exactly. It's a synth Cthulhu. Synthulhu. So let's talk about Blood and Sand, uh, yeah. just uh, for a little bit of perspective on where we're coming from. Uh, this is definitely first impressions. I have only played it once. I played it once with you, and it was only two players, but... The reason why I think that is a, a worthy perspective to have is that uh, there are more people playing two-player games than ever nowadays, and Comet is one of the war games, one of the dudes on a map area control games that people would talk about as it's pretty good at two players. Maybe not perfect, maybe it's not as dynamic as higher player counts, but it's one of those ones that accounts for two players maybe better than other games and there are some unique things that this new version does even for that how many times have you gotten it to the table at this point um three total now nice and player counts uh two three and three excellent so we are, are now coming in with my first and only impressions, and you actually have several plays, three plays. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, still early, it's still early to make a committed opinion, but I will say that, like, you know, since this is familiar territory, too, I mean, we've, and it's actually funny that we played this at lower counts when our past plays of the first edition was at four and five traditionally. Those were games we oftentimes we would dedicate evenings with our gaming group where, you know, this is our once a month to play a heavier, longer game. Well, Comet might be a choice for that. And, and that was usually four or five people. So, so one of my first questions for you is like, when you got it to the table, did it feel like the same game? Did you feel like you were playing Comet or did this feel like this was a, a distinct new thing? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's Comet. I mean, there's almost no, when you talk about like a rules change and you think about um i don't i don't know if you would want to call it like uh if you could really describe a mechanic as being cosmetic it almost felt like the changes were cosmetic in nature very surface level not core i don't know how else to describe it they were substantial in that they did matter they did change the way the game played but the actual mechanics of how you're engaging with the game didn't change it was like do you get do you start the game with more power do you start the game with whatever you know that kind of stuff more like setup changes in some respects than, than really gameplay changes. Um, so yeah, totally the same game. Yeah, I, and I think one of the greatest things about Comet as a game and the reason why we're so eager uh, to get it to the table and also talk about it is that it is, to me, it represents like the crowning achievement of the old school style of heavy conflict, direct area control. I win by killing your dudes. The game incentivizes you going forth and killing folks, you know, the people that you're fighting against. Your friends, you want to murder them and murder them dead, or at least the little player pieces that are on the board. And a lot of the hobby since Comet has looked for ways to circumvent that experience. You know, you have I, now iconic games like Blood Rage, which is like, if we want to battle, if you want to hop in here, then sure, we can battle. But really, my objective is the thing on the board, and I'm going for as many points from different areas as you can go. You have games like Root, where yes, it is lots of conflict that's involved, but every single faction in that game, the way you win is not points driven by the combat itself. It's that the combat is your way of uh, instigating 
uh, the, the struggle for the different things that your particular faction needs in order to win the game. Comet is old school area control war game at its finest. Well, and it's interesting you would say that too, because it's, it's when I got it, um, it to me actually distilled one element of old school war gaming or, or, or area control gaming had that heavy conflict area control, uh, the taking of other people's stuff, because yes, fully half the points you end up with in that game, uh, if you're going to win, are usually going to be centered on the points you get from combat. That's just a fact. That's where at least half your point count typically comes from. There are other points, and yes, you do need to pursue them to win, uh, but you're starting fights and winning them if you're going to if you're going to win that game. Although, um, what made it different, though, is that there was less of an emphasis on holding specific territory. It was kind of King of the Hillish. You wanted to hold the temples, but there wasn't this idea that, like, say like a risk or an access analogy, you didn't have to capture large areas of board. It was more of like, I'm going to put myself out there to get this point by holding these temples. But also I know that that's going to provoke a fight. And really it's about provoking that fight and seeing if I can hang on to something uh, then rather than capturing territory. Um, but also that it, it, it took the idea of like, okay, we're going to eliminate turtling as a defensive tactic. You can't win the game if you're not attacking. And travel in that game is all about teleporting from your home base directly to the action and there's no way to teleport back it's it's a one-way trip to the fight so everything about that game leads into start fights that you can win start fights opportunistically um and only grab territory where it's something that you think you can actually hold on to for the very short term so, so as the the big commit uh die hard here what are the biggest changes about this new edition? Like when you were rattling off like the top things that make an impact either for the better or for the worst, but are monumental in how they shift the original commit. What are they to you? I think the little tweaks, maybe that I wouldn't call them cosmetic, maybe we'd call them a little quality of life tweaks um, that maybe keep things from wobbling off its axis. Those are pretty nice. Um, you've got a couple of little, I'll call out just a couple offhand because there really aren't that many, but the ones they feel, they feel meaningful. They're the kind of things that you might house rule in a game if you had the wherewithal to spot the like, this would make it work better. Um, setup, starting the game with fewer powers on the table if there are fewer players. Down I love to the, that. All the way down to the two player count where it's like you only have two colors of pyramids. So it's a much tighter selection and you remove powers from those colors. So that you're down to at something it was like uh, I'm gonna miscount this, but it was like 26 powers available instead of what would otherwise be 32. Or actually, I mean, if you played under old commit, you would actually be looking at three full colors, 48 powers available in a two-player game. There's no one of the things that makes commit interesting is that there's always this gold rush for powers. Well, if you grab this one, it's no longer available. So I'm gonna grab this one to kind of counter that, and you're gonna grab this to counter that. It's all about adapting and, and trying to stay ahead of your opponent warfare technology wise right well how does that work if there's 48 powers there's always something to grab distill that down to 26 in a two-player game that works much better and it, it, they continue that through the higher player counts by saying okay even at three players you're still only going to play with three colors and once you get up to the higher player count then you'll actually and it might not even be the same three you might do uh black white and blue red blue and black you know whatever um you can do it randomly. I suppose you could pick if you wanted, but it's, it's intended to be randomized or whatever. Um, but then including all four at the highest player count, you know, for the full big sweeping experience. That was really nice. The early game setup of kind of kicking the action off a little faster by everybody starting with the power from their, their one of their chosen colors of pyramid. That was really nice because I felt like it just kind of got, it got you rolling mm -hmm. a little bit faster. Um, it, it feels like it makes the game more aggressive. Both the the starting with the power allows you to feel a little bit more empowered going in, and the 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 reduction of available powers means that everything that you do is directly denying someone else a, a possibility. And even at lower player counts, you don't have this wide open space where you can get a little bit of everything. Like it brings it down to the level of 
what is a necessity. Every single action is so important to me. Every single power that I get is not only important to me and what it does against my opponent, it's also important in what it denies my opponent from doing to me. Um, it, it amps up the tension in the lower player count games in such a significant way. And it adds a ton of replayability. I mean, if you are playing a game now at two players, a blue and white game is going to feel way different than a black and red game or a red and white game. That's going to create more interesting combinations and uh, more dynamic strategies. This like adaptive power set that is so great in games like Comet and what you called out earlier, Eclipse. You know, those are the, the things that really make the game so satisfying beyond just, you know, beating up on your friends is the feeling that you are cultivating your powers in direct opposition to what other people could be doing to you well and and that's that's something interesting because i've often i've referred to command as one of my favorite asymmetric games but it's not asymmetry like what you expect from uh say root which is asymmetric out of out of the game um it is asymmetric uh what i would maybe call progressively asymmetric where you start out the same and you actually there's no way to build in, in the same way you progressively move forward in different directions. Um, and yeah, that, that was the best part. And so starting out with a power, for example, on the table, it's such a minor thing. You know, it's one power point, one energy point worth of stuff. But it means that instead of spending the first couple of turns just buying powers, kind of get set up, you know, maybe your first couple of your actual first five action turn round uh, might have some some real combat in it because you got that first power to kind of get you rolling. So I, I do think it, it sort of just cuts the chase a little faster. Um, little things like uh, taking taking tweaking the uh, the retreating mechanics so that instead of getting back all of the power from the guys that you sacrifice, you get the number of guys minus one. You know, just little little tweaks to make it so that the obvious choice maybe is a tactical decision instead of an always doing the same thing kind of thing. So those are a couple of things I'd call it. The quality of life changes, I think, were good. Very minor, but but very meaningful. Um, uh, I'd say the other change that I liked from this game was the um, was the cosmetic aspects of it too. They did a really good job. We'll just say, and I know we were talking rules, but I'll just say the other thing this this really improves on in a lot of ways is the components. I mean, the, your scorpion is like. 30% bigger. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with that. But the pyramids. Also, the, the pyramids. pyramids they're yeah. so cool. Little plastic pyramids, the little little awesome obelisk things. You build the Luxor out there, uh, you know. Um, and the uh, the new figures are all really good quality. It's all the same stuff. The, the little army guys themselves, your units, those are really cool because those were always one of the things I thought in, in the days when I used to play Risk and it was like, I have a blue cannon and a blue guy on a horse and a blue soldier, and you have the same thing in red. Um, well, the, one of the coolest parts about Comet, which was a game I bought uh, probably in 2013 or so, not long after it came out, that was still relatively early in my gaming, you know, uh, renaissance. And so to me, the fact that every faction had its own sculpt was really cool, but they were so tiny, you couldn't see them that well. These are much bigger, and you could, it, they really pop. It's really cool that your guys. Your faction is Anubis, man. Your little doghead soldiers walking around with the swords are way different looking than the green faction or the yellow faction. So, um, I really like that they made everything that was cool about it that much more visible by kind of sizing it up just a little bit. Yeah, I think the artistry on so much of it is really great, and it has a, a visual identity that's unlike most of the games out there right now. Like, uh, the gods look really cool, the player board's really nice. Um, th there is a drawback to this little bonus, but even the, the back of the board that you play on is this, like, lavish illustration that is so cool looking. And so, like... If you're talking about, you know, immersion and, you know, having this really luxurious and uh, fully produced game, it's outstanding. Uh, the, the, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, if, if I had to call it something thematically, it really does feel like, like a Clash of the Titans in Egypt. Like it is, if you've ever seen the old school, or maybe I guess the new one, but if you've ever seen Clash of the Titans, this idea of like gods meddling in the affairs of mortals, it really feels like, man, there's some, some shit's going down in, in Egypt. That's right, right. 
Uh, some of the other highlights to me, I mean, we already mentioned the the uh, lower player count scaling. Uh, I think the repackaging of the best elements of at least Tassetti, the one expansion that I played and really enjoyed part of and didn't care for at all uh, part of, um, bringing in more powers that are of the Tassetti ilk, you know, having another color, a pyramid that you can play with. So, you know, you're you're playing around with the power sets that are going to be available. And then the balance changes, like there, there were some powers I noticed that were different colors in the original version. They were like, eh, actually, that belongs more in a blue group in order to make sure that these are, are independent I I enough. I think I only spotted one off the top of my head, which was was this this neck, Mr. Snack. Uh, he moved, he migrated over to white from blue, maybe to balance out the, the number of figures. But you did call that out. Yeah, I guess I should mention that you know the changes to powers. You, you the old favorites are all there. You know a lot of the things that made it iconic. The scorpion is still awesome. The the elephant is still really cool. You know a lot of those powers still do exactly what they did in the base game. But then there are definitely some where they took what was easily abusable about it or maybe um, was was maybe something that only people who would play the game before would know to kind of combine. And they retooled some of that stuff. So it, they they all, at least the ones we touched, they all felt good. They all felt like they worked and they were good improvements. Nothing was lost out like, oh, man, I can't believe they took this out. Um I think and then the the last little thing that I want to give a shout on on here is because of convenience. Uh, there there's not much in the way of insert for it, but the power trays, the trays that you can just select. Here's blue, and it's going to be on the ta table, and it's in this beautiful custom tray. That's very modern and very welcome. Uh, anything that's going to make it easier to organize your stuff, and especially set it on the table and get to playing the game sooner. Oh, that's, uh, I, I'm an old man at this point. I want things to be easy. Yeah, I'll just say that the um, the the insert itself, I got rid of it, but it was still a, a nice attempt. I mean, the thing is, is the Kickstarter invariably comes with a few little extras. Um, you know, there's plastic monolith tokens that the monoliths are printed on the board. You don't need the the the, the figures or the monolith plastic minis. Um, they take up room in the box that maybe there wasn't a lot of extra room to to put them in there. So I think that was kind of a well, you bought the extra Kickstarter stuff. The insert maybe wasn't made to service all of that material. Like, where am I going to jam Cthulhu in there? Uh, <laughs> but if you bought this off the shelf uh, without some of those extras, I think the inserts do a really good job, um, more or less. And the, um, uh, yeah, the, the multi-layer boards for the, for the, the power tracking or tracking the, uh, the energy levels and the, the storage solution for the powers themselves were two really welcome changes to the, just the cosmetic nature of the game i just want to mention though when talking about new stuff the green pyramids are not exactly like the black they are a separate expansion that you don't integrate though when you're randomizing which colors to use you do not include those inherently they are a i think scoundrels of skullport lords of Waterdeep type thing they introduce a, a faction of powers that have a corruption mechanic um, so if you're looking for something that is like the base game, but has maybe just a little extra element of something, it's, you're not going to relearn the game. I think it'll be easy. I haven't played with it yet, but I think it'll be easy to integrate. Um, and it's, it doesn't feel like too much of a mini game because it really ties back to the powers themselves. So it's more of an incentivizer or disincentivizer for these things. So I'm interested to see how it plays, but I think I'm optimistic. I, I like that idea that there's the more of the same pyramid, which is the black pyramid. And then there's also this is shifting the game a little bit. You know, the, this uh, adjusts the structure just enough to be its own thing. And also green is the coolest color to have as far as ancient evil. I mean, it's got to be green. Well, I mean, did you know, Jack, that, you know, the pyramids have worn away a lot of their outer layer, but they used to be green. OK, <laughs> true so fact. There's there's no need to Google that. So uh, the the last change that really comes to mind as something that's a minor tweak, which again, so much of this game, the, the best parts of it, and we'll get to some of the worst parts of this, uh, but the best parts seem to be like little minor revisions that breathe a lot of life into the game. Uh, one of the initial cards that you start with has, uh, it's like a, a overwhelming attack, a bloodthirsty card, but it comes at the expense of sacrificing some of your own 
zoning unit, uh, and that wasn't in the original commit as I remembered it. Uh, and because of the card selection mechanic when you're going into combat uh, is so important, uh, it it. Um, it changes the ecosystem on the the very narrow set of cards that you have available to you. Um, the I you know, and my memory is failing me on this, but I want to say that the power card that you're referring to was present in the Black Pyramids. Maybe I think it was a later edition. Um, so, and if that's the case, and that's what my memory is telling me, but if that's the case, either way, it's a welcome addition is just part, a core piece of the game, because I do think it, it's an important, it is a very welcome addition to the game. So, what isn't a welcome addition? I mean, they, this wasn't an all... Uh, knock it out of the park, beautiful expansion, or expansion, a re-release well, or revision to this game. There's, so look, if, if I'm going to rate this, I'm still going to say it's, it's if you like the original, if you never played the original, but you like the way it sounded, you know, if you if you watched a review of 1.0 and thought, well, it's not available, should I get 2.0? Absolutely. Right. It's a great game, and anything I'm about to say, you can forgive it, more or less. Um, I'd still give it an 8 or a 9, you know, in my, in my book, in this genre of games now that said it may it commits a few of those sins that you and i like to rant on about a little bit as gamers who are just like man how have they not figured this out yet first of all madigo is a french uh, are, are largely french designed and french language games at least is the where they start and get translated and usually i mean they'll have they'll have uh, i remember the original command had like five different booklets for translations oh hey actually quick call out the five booklets they gave you this time were all of the language of whatever edition you got but everybody got a menu for powers instead of just having one menu to pass around it, that was a fantastic and welcome edition thank you for giving me five copies of the power guidebook instead of making me be like hey can i uh, can i can i see that uh, when you're done with it Gone are the days where you had to waste your toner uh in order to print out your own copies right? of things that should have been in the box but Speaking of things that were printed, though, getting back to the language issue, is at this day, in this day and age, honestly, when I can Google Translate many things, not perfectly, but pretty well, I really expect the translation efforts on board games to be more thorough. And I feel like this one mostly was, but it did feel like there may have been one or two little spots. And, and I like my board game language precise because I don't like the ambiguity of house rule. I want to know what was the intent and how this was designed to play. I... I seek to engage with the game on its own merits, not help get it to the finish plate or finish line on, on, on design. So when I read a rule and it's ambiguous, I'm like, why wasn't this better worded? And one of the ones that comes to mind, and I can't, and maybe I'm blaming translation unfairly, but it feels like maybe it's, it's missing something in translation, possibly. The end game mechanic is a little ambiguous. And there was a little bit of day one errata that I, I, you know, was a little bit like, come on. I mean, I just don't know. Maybe I'm underselling how hard it is to get a really finely tuned rulebook. But I do feel like that could have been just a little small area. Um, speaking of the card you mentioned, the, the big five pointer that kills you guys, the iconography is largely consistent across the whole game, except in like two small areas. The uh, when you have to sacrifice your pieces to that card, it uses the iconography iconography in a way that basically no other piece does without any clarifier in the back of the book. Uh, I'm going to call back to Jack's rant uh, on one of his videos that I rewatched recently. Dear designers, put a glossary. Well, this one had a glossary. Please also put clarifiers for your cards if you're not going to have printed text on them. Right. If you're going to have symbology, you should have like a, a clear definition of what every symbol is going to mean. And then, you know, if you do things like pluses and minuses or something like that, then that as well should be clear what that's intending. If you have one card and it's the only card in the game that has a minus on it, then it's worth explaining what that minus actually means, especially when it's unclear. Does this subtract from my black blood drops? Does it subtract from someone else's black blood drops? Well, and the reason I got to give him just a tiny bit of flack about that is because I'm holding, if whether whether the podcasters can hear it or not, I'm holding the, the, little, the little menu that they give you. And uh, 
it's got one, two, three, four, five. It's got a total of four pages back to back, pretty much something on every side. So it's got eight pages of uh, of menu, so to speak. But each what this is is it's a picture of the tile and it explains what the power is, right? So it right. deciphers the iconography. You need that when you're buying from 16 powers per color. And, and you just want to know, okay, do I have one that gives me more damage somewhere? Like, what, what the heck is all this symbology? So this is great. And they even plan the back two pages. Actually, the green expansion is in there. But the back two pages are even clarifiers for um, some of the extra content. Uh, so where are the battle cards themselves like they just it's just, even just that one battle card like would have been nice um so yeah that could have been somewhere i don't know minor thing the other thing that we call i really want to call out because largely it was a success but the other thing i want to call out was okay i i kind of feel like and maybe i don't know what the solution is but there had to be a better way to do the board i always thought commit was interesting in that it tried it took and made a board in which everything was equidistant to all players. If this temple is four spaces away from me, it's also four spaces away from you. If you are three spaces away from me, you're also three spaces away from the other player at the table and I am vice versa. Like there is no positional advantage. This isn't like dad took Australia in the early game, <laughs> you know, whatever, another risk reference here, but like never conquer Asia. The other thing I know, don't ever try to win Asia in the land war, right? Exactly. Um, but but there's no positional advantage except that the way this this does it is a really cleverly shaped board. Well, in the old game, you had a two and four player side of the board, and basically you would you would lay down the board and you would ignore for the for the lower player count, you would ignore anything on one side of the Nile. And then for a three to five, you'd flip it over and you'd ignore ignore anything on one side of the Nile for the three player, right? Right. Uh, well that you know that worked. It was never my favorite. I don't ever like having to ignore half of the entire board and explain, especially if I have a new player, explain like, hey, stop trying to walk your guys across. You can't capture that temple. <laughs> Pretend, Pretend it doesn't, doesn't exist. exist. Right. And then to, to take it and what they, but that was a double-sided board where they had a two and four and three and five player count respectively. Mm -hmm. They've designed this board for an inevitable, uh, the, one of those things we've talked about a little bit here, the inevitable six-player expansion because they have all the material printed to allow for six players. They just don't have a sixth player in the box. Uh, another um, Lords of Waterdeepism in there, you know, preempting yeah. the the expansion material that's going to come out by giving you the iconography. Scythe did that as well, where they were like, yeah, there are things in here, but totally we didn't cut them out of the game. The game is as designed here, but we're telling oh, yeah. you it's coming down the road. Yeah, and, and I, had, I did a double take when I counted the number of available starting spots. I was like, wait a minute. But um, either that, or, either that, or I need to get on there and double check the Kickstarter, and maybe there was supposed to be a sixth <laughs> one in the box and minus. You never know, but I, I'll check that. But um, no, the thing about it is though, is they take that board and they still make you divide it down the middle. But then, and I'm gonna wave some more stuff. Then they give you these chunky things, these Desert Storm chunky cardboard tiles, um, that are intended to cover up specific uh, sections of the board. Right, right. They they just like become this desert mass or a storm and you just pretend as though that section doesn't exist. And otherwise things are, you know, like you you play with that mass of the board and then still ignore another big chunk of the board. It seems like right. an inelegant solution. Like, yeah. I know what they're going for, but at the same time, if they did the luxurious print job on the backside of the board that you're never going to see except to look at it once and be like, oh, wow. That's hey, guys, really let me show you this. Exactly. You can't like frame it and put it on your wall because then you don't have the board to play on. It really seems like they could have done a like, here's the two to three player specific version of the game on the back of the board. And then here's the four and higher player count version. And then maybe you don't use sections of the board or whatever. I don't know. Well, it seems like a step back. I do think, I do think you probably, and again, I'm not proposing that I know the exact best solution, but maybe something like that, a two and three where you use the storm to cover up the third. Cause that's really all it is, is you're mostly, you, you don't use the other half of the board cause you don't want to have too many temples available. Again, you got to reduce the choices. So those storms were actually not the part that I minded the most. The storms worked. I felt like they more, I mean, they're, they're a little busy looking in my hands, brightly colored, swirly, chaotic storms of sand. But when they're on the board, they weren't actually 
uh, hard to, to figure out visually. What was harder was to have things on the board that you just were supposed to block out in your mind. Covering up the, the starting spot or whatever, or covering up covering up one of the pieces didn't was was less confusing than having pieces you didn't use. Sure, or elements sure. of the word you didn't use, I guess is the point. So I really wish that they had maybe thought of a different solution. I that was one solution I was hoping for going forward, where I feel like I don't know if I'd call it a step back, but it was a step sideways where it's not necessarily better or worse than the old game. It just kind of eh, it's still the same basic problem of ignore part of your board. Well, and reminding I, players like this temple is in play. These ones are not. I agree with you that this is the best version of the game. I, uh, you know, like, it, and this is a beautiful version of the game. Uh, we talked earlier about how Comet left my collection. It left my collection mainly because it just wasn't seeing play, but it was a really hard game to let go of my collection because to me, like I said earlier, it's the best version of what this game does best that's out there. And uh, I, I've let go of uh, many other games, uh, and Comet is still one of those ones where I'm like, ah, should I find the playgroup to play it more? I mean, when I saw your version of Comet Blood and Sand, I was like, oh, this is so cool. I really want a copy of this. But fortunately, you and I live close to one another and I could just play it with you and I have someone to play Comet with. So, uh, you know, like my style tends to be in the more subverting what the the traditions of the genre are by, you know, like I really love games like Root and Blood Rage. Uh, and when I'm wanting a big stompy game, like uh, in a more traditional sense, I like the really big stompy game like Game of Thrones, as opposed to like, I, I just am not going to get commit to the table as much as it deserves. Still huge respect for it. And I think this edition is beautiful. And if you didn't have it and I played it like at a convention, I'd probably be like, all right, Komet, you're coming back to my collection. <laughs> well, but I do just want to call out one thing uh, before before we kind of move on to the to the wrap up. And it's just that the chat is breaking my heart right now. Um, Pumpkinhead, knock it off, please. <laughs> um, because I was just having a conversation with Jack about another hot release, Ankh, which it should be delivering to its backers or has delivered to many of its backers now. It is also in that Egyptian gods theme and is also kind of part of a, a pseudo trilogy-ish type. You know, you got Blood Rage, Ankh, Rising Sun, and you've got Cyclades and Komet and Inish is you know, these sort of mythological area control trilogy type settings. And Ankh, I actually passed on and it was a tough pass because I really love Blood Rage. I was... I really, I do really enjoy Rising Sun, but it also is hard to stay in my collection because I have so many of that type. It's at risk. So did I need one more to put even more games at risk? No, I didn't. But, but man, that was a hard... And look at all these obelisks and all of these pyramids and like a little coin slotting into this other thing. Oh man, John, you missed out and you had to settle for it. No, I think Comet is, uh, to me, it is one of the games that uh, is iconic of our friendship. And it's one of the games that I, I think of as uh, what does John love most about games and the adaptive strategies uh, having to do with all the powers, you know, the, the sort of organic asymmetry that develops throughout the life of the game, uh, the really aggressive play style and the, uh, the, the emphasis on the actual uh, exchange between players rather than turtling and just holding on to one thing. Uh, those to me are, are a lot of what I think of when I think of the games that you love best. Um, I agree with you. The, the low points uh, are um, some of the rule clarification things that we hit on the errata. I just want to like go to this BGG page. Like, come on guys. Like here, here we have the revised rules are available in a file section and it's not just clarifications like straight up. We need to define and, maybe even change some things right away on a brand new game. Like, do you have blind testers? Why isn't this being addressed in advance of things, especially with how much of an influx of money is going into this project right away? This is a Kickstarter. They were given money in order to work out all the stuff in order to make the best possible version of this game get into your hands. You know, if we accept that Kickstarter at this point, yeah, it's like a pre-order service or whatever, 
but the 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 point of it being that even big companies even the matagos of the world want it so that way they can make the best possible game that shouldn't only be put into the heavy cool ass plastic that you're going to have which is very right. cool it should also be making sure that this is the most polished version of the game to date that said the clarifications are out there and you have it and now even if it wasn't in the the game as actually released in the box all of it is defined and it is the most polished version of the game it just had this little stain on it uh when it uh came out um but other than that is it just it crushed it i i think this is one of the best revitalizations of a game out there that i would put up there with eclipse as just like if you like this genre game this deserves this new treatment and it is one of the best uh, one of the best versions of this style of game to ever come out which is a great thing to say about a game that came out in 2012 yeah i agree and uh honestly i you know as giddy as i was about my dungeons and dragons magic cards i was probably more giddy to get the experience how often do i get to reopen a board game for the first time that i already own and i kind of am a sucker for that sometimes it's like okay here take my money you know because i i get the chance to unbox something and play with the toys for the first time all over again and it's been almost 10 years since the last time well it has been fun talking to you about Comet, and I think we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, thanks to Pumpkinhead and uh, Midnight Board Gaming in the chat. It's always nice to have some folks uh, joining in, asking questions, and having some things to say. Uh, if you want to ask John and I any questions uh, outside of chat, then you can always uh, hit up the Cardboard Herald on Twitter, or better yet, uh, join the Discord, and you can talk to us about all sorts of stuff as I hit the microphone that probably sounds really good as you're listening um and uh i think we're going to plan on doing one of these kind of more elaborate but open-ended discussions about descent legends of the dark when that comes in uh if you have any ideas for discussion points for the show in the future or feedback or anything we'd love to hear it uh john doesn't take well to any sort of criticism uh he just wants to hear how he's right all the time but i'll, I'll try to convince him in a way that is more palatable to his taste well i thought that's why i kept you around is to tell me why i was wrong oh okay yeah exactly that's why we keep each other around we keep <laughs> each other's uh the 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 worst tendencies in check or that's the hope uh so once again it's been a pleasure john and i will talk to you next week man all right i'll see you next time <laughs>